Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. In January, when everybody's trying to get back in shape, physical shape, Pastor Jordan and I thought it would be really good for us to talk about spiritual shape. What does it mean to live a healthy Christian life and to be in a healthy Christian life? And to give us some framework of what a healthy Christian life looks like, last week I introduced you to what are six W's of a healthy Christian. And because repetition is the mother of all learning, we're going to go over those again. So take out your outlines and we're going to work our way through these. A healthy Christian, number one, is founded on the Word. A healthy Christian knows God through the applied Word of God under the direction and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this last week and how we are born again, the Bible says, through the Word of Truth. We are matured and grown through the Word of Truth. And the Bible is so essential to a healthy Christian life. Secondly, is worship. A healthy Christian manifests a lifestyle of worship and prayer based on close daily communion with God. Third is warmth. A healthy Christian engages in meaningful life-on-life relationships that reflect the love of God and leave people impacted and changed. Uh, Then there's witness. A healthy Christian lives under the commission of Christ to win and grow disciples integrating outreach into all aspects of their life. There's works. A healthy Christian builds up the body of Christ through their spiritual gifts and passions. And lastly is wisdom. A healthy Christian manages their skills, their money, and their time, putting them all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Today, we are on the second uh, week of this series. So we're going to look at worship. And what does a healthy Christian look like when it comes to worship in their life? Now, folks, worship should be part of our life. We worship God, number one, because he created us. But we also worship God because he has been incredibly good to us. God didn't just create us. But even when we are dead in our sins and our trespasses, when we are fully deserving of the lake of fire, God loves us. He loves us so much. The Bible says he gave his only begotten son to take on flesh to die in our place for our sin to take on eternity of suffering that we deserve for our sin to absorb it all into himself in space and time on the cross to die for you and then he did that to make us the most blessed beings in the universe how can we not respond by worshiping jesus How can we not respond by being thrilled to Jesus for how incredibly good God is to us? So worship, it's our natural response that comes out of us for what God has done for us. A healthy Christian, uh, an unhealthy Christian life will be missing worship because people will be all about worshiping themselves. On the other side, a very healthy Christian life will be filled with worship as their hearts overflow with joy and thankfulness to God and they cannot help but be thankful and worship God with everything they do and with all who they are. Now as we look at this topic of worship, uh, I've sort of broken it into two pieces. 
One is the topic of prayer, because prayer is part of our response to God. When we talk to God and we thank God, and it's how we commune with God. But then there's also worship itself, uh, how we worship God, whether it's on Sunday or through our lives as we go throughout our days. So I have sort of two mini messages, one being on prayer and the other being on the topic of, mer- of worship. So that's how we're going to approach this. The first thing we're going to do is look at this topic of prayer. How do we worship God in prayer? If you've read Ephesians, uh, the first three chapters, you know that the first three chapters focus on our identity in Jesus and what God has done for us. And it's simply amazing. For instance, Ephesians, chap- Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, says that we are adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus, and he chose to adopt us literally before the foundation of the universe. Before anything was created, God had you in his heart, and he chose to put you together with his own son, Jesus Christ. That is how well he knows you and his love and plans for you. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, it says we are completely forgiven of our sin through Jesus. No matter what we have done, no matter how bad we have failed, No matter how stupid or foolish we have been, when we turn to Jesus and ask Jesus to forgive us, he completely takes away our sin. He doesn't bring up our past anymore. It is absorbed and taken away through Jesus. Isn't God good? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 says, Our inheritance through Jesus Christ in eternity is beyond anything we could ever conceive of or imagine. Isn't that amazing to think of that? And then Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 describes us literally as God's masterpiece work in the universe. You ever looked at the stars? Remember when we looked at the size of some of the planets out there? You've looked at the beauty of creation. God is amazing in his creative abilities. But did you realize that you and I, through what God has done through us through Jesus Christ, is beyond all that? We are his masterpiece. There is never going to be, and there has not been, a greater work than God has done other than taking us from the lake of fire that we deserve and making us the blessed objects of his greatest mercy and grace, adopted brothers and sisters of the Son of God. That's our identity, folks. Now, here is where it gets interesting. Many people, as they've been uh, Christians for a while, uh, they start to learn their identity in Jesus and how incredibly good God has been to us through Jesus and we're thankful to Jesus. But then after a while, we sort of end up with a spiritual ego, sort of a little bit uh, less desperate for God because we realize how good God has been to us. Sometimes mature Christians actually sort of move away from a prayer-filled life. They move to more of a prayerless life. Are you there? As you've grown in Christ, has your faith become more intellectual and less desperate calling out to God in prayer, asking for his mercy, asking for his help, asking for him, telling him that you constantly need him? Have you grown away from prayer? Now it is 
to Christians who have matured in Christ but have grown away in Christ that Paul writes what is a, a verse in 1 Thessalonians. He says this is what our prayer life should be like. He simply says this, pray without ceasing. We as Christians are not to grow away from prayer, but we're to grow to become more constant in prayer. In fact, I think the best way to put it is Paul's picture of prayer in the Christian life is it's like breathing to the human life. Just as we are breathing constantly every day to survive and to be healthy, as Christians, we should be praying constantly to survive and to be healthy. Praying about everything, praying about every need, praying about everyone, not to grow away from prayer as we grow up in Christ, but to grow more into prayer as we grow up in Jesus Christ. Now, you know what it's like if we try to hold our breath. It doesn't go too well. It doesn't last too long. Now, I don't know about you guys, but any of you have COVID? Ever go through COVID yet? Yeah, okay. This is the COVID group. You know, I had it twice. Uh, the problem with COVID is you can't breathe. You have this low oxygen thing. You're tired. You're listless. You can't get out of bed. Time in the gym for me was atrocious. You know, just no energy to do anything because I couldn't breathe. But that's a good picture of the Christian life without prayer. Tired, listless, without energy. But a Christian life with prayer is filled with health and vitality. Now, while Paul gives us a picture of who we are in Jesus in the first three chapters in Ephesians, the last three chapters in Ephesians, he really talks about how we should respond to what Christ has done for us. And if you go to chapter six at the very end, he picks up this topic of prayer and he tells us what the Christian life should be like when it comes to prayer. He says this, we should be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And what I want to do is just take that verse and pick it apart to look at the different facets and aspects of prayer that God gives us. Number one, he says, we are to pray all kinds of prayers. And by that, I'd get out of this. It's from here. With all prayer and supplication. This simple word prayer in this verse, in the Greek it is a very general term for prayer, referring to all different kinds of prayer. We are to pray privately when we're driving. It's also appropriate to pray publicly when we are in church. We are to pray out loud, verbally. We are also to pray silently in our heart. By the way, it's appropriate to pray to pre-written prayers. You ever seen those things? Sometimes the, the book of common prayer has been an old book that's been around, some pre-written prayers to guide us. It's appropriate to do that, but it's also appropriate to pray spontaneous prayers. It's appropriate to pray requesting for our needs, but it's also appropriate to pray just thanking God for his goodness and how good and kind he is. It's appropriate to pray while we're still, but it's also appropriate to pray while we're walking. You ever gone for a prayer walk? And that's one of the things that Cindy and I love to do for a summer, during the summer. We go for a walk and then we pray for our neighbors and we pray for things in our life while we're walking. Very appropriate thing to do. It's appropriate to pray in any position. 
I mean, you could be standing when you pray. You can be sitting when you pray. You can be kneeling when you pray. You can be on your face when you pray. And you could be almost asleep in bed on your back. And you can still pray. Uh, we can pray before our meals. Uh, we can pray over our children in bed. Remember, prayer is like breathing. Paul says we are to be praying all the time about everything. And he says we shouldn't just be praying, but he says we should be have supplications. Now, supplications, that means requests. But when it says request, to be honest, the idea here is not general requests. The idea is we should be praying about specific requests. I'm going to use the mission thing with Haiti for just a moment. I, I know how it is. We have that mission board out there that sort of shows the missionaries and what they're doing. It's real easy for us to say, okay, I know I should be praying for the ministries. I've got this covered. I walk by the mission board. God, I pray for the missionaries. Done. It's covered. That's not the kind of prayer this is talking about when it says supplications. The picture is we need to pray about specific things for specific needs for specific people. Let me just share with you something I would love to see take place at Crosswinds this year. I know we have a missions prayer group where like all these missionary prayer requests just get like bazookaed out to everybody, which probably ends up with people praying for nobody. What I think is better and what I'd love to see is the life groups. Each life group adopt one of our missionaries and get to know that one missionary. And when that missionary sends out their prayer request, they know that life group at Crosswinds Church will specifically pray for their prayer request and get back to them and have some kind of correspondence. That is what this is picturing when it says supplications. Should we pray generally for all people and all things, but also specifically for specific needs? And that's how I'd like to see it take place. It also says we are to pray all the time. He says there in verse 18, pray all the time. And what this means is we should be praying in the morning. You should pray in the evening. Uh, you should play when you can't sleep. Now let's jump to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. It says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. The idea is when you're anxious, when you're worried, when you're concerned, what should we do? Pray. Pray about everything. Um, now, one of the things that this says in the next verse, it says, and when we pray, the peace that passes understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. You ever had those times of anxiety where you can't sleep? You're worried about the future and you see things that are going on and you call out to God and say, God, I just can't worry about this anymore. I have to leave this in your hands. You have to take care of it. And then God gives you peace and you can actually get some sleep because you know God's got it because you don't. That's what this verse tells us to do. It also says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In other words, don't give up in prayer. Sometimes it's easy to say, I prayed about something. God didn't answer. Prayer doesn't work. And Paul says, no, continue steadfast be faithful be strong in prayer because oftentimes when God chooses to answer prayers 
it's not usually in our timing. It's usually in his timing, isn't it? It's not usually in our ways and the way we want it to be answered. It's also even in God's ways and the way he wants it to be answered. And we look back after five years or three years and back on it like, boy, am I thankful God answered it in his timing and in his way because it was a lot better than my idea of what the answer looked like. So Paul says, don't give up on prayer when God doesn't seem to be responding in, um, in the way we expect him to respond. Here's another one. We are to pray with perseverance. He also says in here, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Perseverance means endurance. We keep on praying. We don't give up. Here's another one I want to give you about prayer. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I told you earlier that there's times when we're filled with anxiety. We're filled with worry. We give those things to God. We give it to him in prayer, and he gives us peace, and we can sleep, and we can move on. God, I can't handle this. You can handle it. And sometimes we have those instant results. But I want to be honest. Sometimes it doesn't always happen that way. Maybe you're somebody who's going through a relational breakup Maybe you're somebody who's going through a marital breakup and the pain comes to the top of your heart and you give it to God in prayer and it's fine for like five minutes. And then an hour later in the day, all of a sudden you're overwhelmed with that wave of emotions again and you have to give it to God again in prayer. In fact, you find yourself talking to God in prayer and giving your worries and concerns to him four times a day five times a day and you wonder this doesn't seem to end keep doing it keep giving it to God in prayer keep casting your anxieties on him he does care for you just realize that things like relationship breakdowns marital breakdowns they're huge and you have to go to God for his mercy and grace constantly in those things not just one time or two times Luke chapter 18, verse 1 says this, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray, and notice this, and not lose heart. Don't give up when it comes to calling out to God in prayer. Now, Luke chapter 18 is the parable of what's known as the persistent widow. In that parable, a, a judge of a city, and it says this is an unjust judge who does not fear God, had a widow that kept coming to him to get justice. And finally, the judge gave her justice because she was such a pest. And then it says this, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give to them, he will give justice to them speedily. Then he ends with this, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What this is talking about is that uh, if an unjust judge would give justice to a woman who badgered him to, to get her needs met, God's character is different. He's not an unjust judge. He is a loving father who cares about you and he loves you 
and he will answer our prayers in the right time and in the right way, not waiting too long, but in the right time and in the right way. But sometimes it seems like he's not listening. It seems like he's not responding. And many people will give up on God because of that. This is why it ends by saying, when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will there be people who have still waiting for him and calling out to him and trusting in him? Paul says, persevere in our prayers. Don't give up on prayers when God doesn't seem to instantly respond. Number four, he also says this, this, we are to be alert and to pray for others' needs. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. This uh, word alert means being sensitive to what's around us. This is saying if we want to pray well, husbands, you don't just pray for your wife in a general way. You understand what are her real needs. You understand what's the problems that are on her heart. You get to know her, and then you pray for her specifically, not generally. That's the right way to do it. Wives, when you pray for your husbands, it's not just a general blanket prayer. Once again, be alert to his specific needs, the specific pain in his heart, and pray for him in a specific way. Parents, the same thing with our children. We don't just give them a blanket prayer. We know what the challenges they are facing. And we pray about those specific challenges. So keep your eyes open, he says. Be alert to the needs. He also says we are to pray for other Christians. He finally says this, pray for all the saints. By the way, the saints are not a football team here. Uh, The saints means other Christians. One of our responsibilities is that we are to pray for one another. One of the reasons that God puts us together in a church family and doesn't just leave us alone and isolated is he wants us praying for each other. This is why as a church we have a a prayer chain. Things that happen in your life that are difficult and hard, send it out, call us in the office. We'll send it out in the prayer chain to know your church family will be praying for you. That's our responsibility to one another. Things that are more personal, Maybe those are things that you pray for one another in a life group about, not a general church about. Things that are even more personal. Maybe those are things that you pray in an Iron Man or an Iron Woman group or it's just three or four of you together who are heart on heart, life on life. Hey, this is what I'm struggling with. I can't tell other people, but this is the safe place. I need your help in prayer. That's our responsibility to one another. And then lastly, he says this. We are to pray for spiritual, not just physical needs. This is actually, if you go to the next verse, next two verses. Pray, that is, also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now at first, there doesn't seem to be much significance there. And then I thought, maybe there's a lot of significance there. Paul has told the Ephesians to be praying all the time about everything, to be praying for other Christians. And then he says, let me give you my prayer request. Understand where Paul is when he wrote this book. He is in jail for his faith. But notice what he asked them to pray for. 
not that he would be let out of jail. He asked, can you pray that I would speak the gospel with great clarity and with great boldness? More important than me getting out of jail is I would be a good witness while I am in jail. The spiritual things are more important than the physical things in his life. And I thought about that when it comes to how we put out our prayer requests. Isn't it so easy to say, oh, I just pray, pray for me that these physical difficulties would go away. Pray that these physical challenges wouldn't be around anymore. But what's far more important is that spiritual progress takes place in the lives of people around us. That's a much greater priority to pray about. Pray that we would speak the gospel no matter where God might have us with greater clarity and with greater boldness. That's Paul's prayer. So if I were to summarize uh, what Paul teaches us about prayer, it's that as we grow in Christ, we should not grow away from prayer, but we should become more constant in prayer about everything in praying for our brothers, praying for our sisters. Prayer is like breathing. It should be something we do in every day and in every way. Now let's move out of this prayer side and I want to talk about worship and I want to talk about the wrong ways to worship God and to make this shift a little more fun. I'll give you a little transitional story. This by the way is a true story. Some of you may find that hard to believe but it is true. It starts in 1977. A lady uh, from New Mexico, her name is Maria Rubio, was making a burrito for her husband. And she had the tortilla, she was cooking in the pan. She took the tortilla out of the pan, was about to wrap it into a burrito, and she noticed that the burn mark on the bottom of the tortilla, she said, looked like Jesus. She talked to her husband and said, look, there's Jesus on the tortilla. And then she talked to her neighbors, there's Jesus on the tortilla. And her husband and her neighbors said, it looks like Jesus on the tortilla. And then she went to her local priest and asked the priest to bless the tortilla. Now the priest was not accustomed to blessing tortillas, but he did it anyway. She brought the tortilla back home and she put it in a box on some cotton and then her husband noticed how much she liked this tortilla on the box in cotton, and he put it in the shed in the back and made a little shrine for her to go out. Side and see Jesus on the tortilla. And that began what is known as the shrine of Jesus of the tortilla, because in the next two months, they had 8,000 visitors. Over the next two years, they had 35,000 visitors to pray to Jesus on the tortilla. Now, that continued for 28 years until one day she gave her granddaughter the tortilla to take it to school for show and tell. Let's just say by then it was a little stale. And you know what happens with kids when they're bouncing around the room. Jesus was dropped, and Jesus shattered into pieces, and thus came the end of Jesus of the Tortilla, where thousands of people had gone to pray. Now, I say this story to obviously get a little laughs out of you, but just to help you realize that many people are interested in worshiping God, 
but many people are worshiping God the wrong way. And also, next time you're at a Mexican restaurant, look closely at your tortilla. I want to tell you about some of the wrong ways that we can worship God and the implications of what goes on with that. So let's begin with point number one. Like, we can worship a different God or don't worship a different God. Isaiah 48, 11. My glory, he says, I will not give to another. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. The Bible is very clear. There is only one God in the universe, and anyone who is worshiping a different God is not worshiping the same God in a different way. Understand this, they're worshiping a completely different God. God is a jealous God, and he doesn't want anybody worshiping a different God. In case you're wondering about this, think of the Old Testament. What happened when the Israelites began to worship the Baals and the asterisks in the, of their neighbors around them? Did God say, oh, I understand, you're just worshiping me, but you're worshiping me by a different name and a different way? No. In fact, if you look at the text, God says they began to worship demons instead of God. And by the way, that carries forward into the New Testament as well. What does Paul say about pagan sacrifice? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participant with demons. And I bring this point up because in our postmodern world, People will say, as long as you are spiritual, as long as you are religious, you're worshiping a God your way by a God of your name that you have chosen, that's fine. That's not true. The Bible is abundantly clear. Worship the right God and worship him the right way. Second thing, don't worship God by what is called self-styled worship. And I want to point out the golden calf incident. You remember that golden calf in the Old Testament? Let me read for you a little section of it. Exodus 32. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, notice this, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a, st a stiff-necked people. So Moses is up on Mount Sinai, uh, getting the Ten Commandments and other things from God. What's happening is the people with Aaron, while he is away, they decide they want to worship God, but they want to worship God in their own way. Remember, they came out of Egypt. Egypt has a lot of gods, and they have a lot of different idols of gods. So they decided, we're going to make a golden calf to represent the God who brought us out of Egypt. They were not rejecting God who brought them out of Egypt. They were just choosing to worship God by making an image of him. Now, when the Ten Commandments come down from Mount Sinai with Moses, very clearly one of them is not to make an image of God because an image of God misrepresents God because an image of God could never accurately contain or picture God. 
So what happened is these people were still worshiping the same God, but they were worshiping God their own way, not the way that God wanted to be worshiped. How well did that end up for them? Not well at all. In fact, God originally planned to kill all of them. And instead, the Levites only killed 3,000 of them. So choosing to worship God in a way that we choose, not the way that God specifies that he wants to be worshiped, is a very dangerous way to go. I'll give you another example of this. Leviticus chapter 10. Do you remember the guys Nadab and Abihu? Aaron had four sons. Two of those were Nadab and Abihu. Now they grew up in his house. They were trained to be priests. They knew all the details and the intricacies of what you had to do to be a priest. But Nadab and Abihu, it says, decided to offer, to offer what was called unauthorized fire. Now you wonder, what is that? I'm making this up, I don't know. They usually would have incense sensors. Maybe one of their sensors went out rather than going back to the proper place to light the fire. Maybe one of them had a Bic lighter in his pocket. I don't know. But whatever it was, they chose to violate and not follow the prescriptions of how God said he was to be worshipped. They did it their own way. And you know what happened after that. It was the movie Backdraft. Because fire shot out from the tabernacle and killed both of them. Because God says, you worship me the way I want to be worshipped, not just the way you choose to worship me. Now, with those two thoughts in mind, I think that should frame and guide us for how we worship God in the church. We don't just get to make up worship and do whatever we want. Rather, we should look in the scriptures and follow the biblical precedent that is given to us. For instance, in the scriptures, we see that worship in church involves the preaching and teaching of the word of God. That should be something that is found when we worship. They sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That should be something that we do when we worship. There is prayer in church. There should be the Lord's Supper in church. There should be baptism in church. And I say these things which sound very elementary, but the point is that many churches, in an attempt to be relevant, in an attempt to reach a culture, have rejected some of those things. There are some churches that have rejected the preaching of the Bible so they can be more relevant. Oh, that's self-styled worship. I wouldn't go there. Look how it ended in the Old Testament. There's another church I was a part of for briefly for a period of time that on Sunday mornings, they didn't do like necessarily psalms, hymns, or spiritual songs. They just played some secular songs just right off the radio. That's what they sung up front. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not what church is about. I know you're trying to be relevant and bring people in, but you're trying to like do worship your own way, not worship God's way, and it doesn't end well. Now, I, I ran across this one. I don't think we have to worry about this, but I thought it was interesting. There was one church that actually set up on the front a professional wrestling ring and had the pastors do professional wrestling on a Sunday. And I'm like... I think preaching is in the Bible. I don't think professional wrestling is in the Bible. You know, I get your attempt to be relevant, but you've gone too far. 
So I simply want to point out, when it comes to worship, we have to worship God in the way he prescribes in Scripture, not any old way we choose to make up in our mind. And when we choose to worship God any way we want, not the way he wants, the Old Testament shows us it doesn't tend to end well. Another way we can worship God the wrong way. Don't worship God with the leftovers of my life. Our God is the best. Out of us, he deserves the best. We find this in Malachi. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show your favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hands. Now, in the Old Testament, they were, people were going to what was their version of church, and they would offer animals in sacrifice, and they said, well, here's the deal. I have a couple blind animals. I have some lame animals. I can't do anything else with them. Nobody wants them. They're just the leftovers. I'll bring those to God. Give God the blind. Give God the leftovers. Give God the things that nobody else wants. And God's like, do you think I'm really impressed with that? Do you think that's legitimate worship of me to give God the leftovers from your life rather than the best of your life? He said, try giving that to your governor. Try paying taxes with that. If your government wouldn't accept it, why do you think I will accept it? He says, I don't like your worship because you're giving me the leftovers from your life. You're not giving me what is best in your life. And I remember when I read this a number of years ago, actually before I was a pastor, and God cut me to the heart on that one. Because on Sunday mornings, I was worth pretty much nothing. Because Saturday night, I was up late. Saturday night, I was out partying with my friends. Saturday night was my night. And of the 11 o'clock service, well, that was too early for me. You know, like I needed two cups of coffee to keep my eyes somewhat open, and then I still fell asleep during the sermon. And I was reading this, and God was like, you're giving me the leftovers of your life. You're worth nothing when you're here in my house. You shouldn't be giving me the best in, in your life. And God cut me and I was like, okay, I'm going to bed at 10.30. I'm not partying late on Saturday night. When I'm here on Sunday morning, I want to be at my best to give my best to the one who is best. That's true worship. A um, couple of years ago, we had some discussion on the worship team. And there was this discussion that went around. I remember this, where the person on the worship team said, you know, why do we need to practice? Why don't we just show up on Sunday morning? We all know each other. I mean, we can just wing it. Aren't we good enough? No, you're not. No, you're not. The truth is that you're not here to sing to other people. You're here on the worship team to worship Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And he deserves that you do your absolute best because he is the best. And yes, you practice ahead of time because he's worth it. You may even have to practice at home because he is worth it. Because true worship is giving our best from our life, not the leftovers. He's not pleased with just leftovers. 
Let me look at one more, and I'm going to be over time, I know. Don't ignore financial worship. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. What was going on is God's people were not worshiping him with their wallets. When it came to their uh, giving to God, it was like, we're going to give God a tip. We're not going to give God a tithe. We're not going to give any sacrificial worship, just a, a, a little sort of financial tip in our worship. Now, you may wonder, what is a tithe? Tithe simply means 10%. They were to give 10% of their income as worship to the Lord. Incidentally, in the New Testament, it does not tell us that Christians must give a tithe. It tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that what we give should be what is given sacrificially for us, what is proportionate to our income, what is um, generous, and what is cheerful. In other words, for many of us, a tithe is probably a good place to start, but it doesn't mean necessarily that it's the place we have to stop. Some of us here, we're all takers. <laughs> we participate in the heat. We participate in learning about Jesus Christ. We participate in, in getting coffee. But we're all takers. We're not givers. We don't worship God with our wallet. And I'll be honest, God's not pleased. We should worship him with our wallet and give generously, sacrificially, proportionally. For you, maybe that's beginning by giving 1%. Maybe that's giving 2%. Maybe that's giving a full tithe. Maybe that's giving 10% is generous, sacrificial, and proportionate for you. I don't know. But I do know that worship that is pleasing to God involves our wallet in our worship. And when we refuse to worship God with our wallet, what it's often saying is, God, you're not worth that much to me. When we say, I want to be always a taker and never a giver, that's not spiritual maturity. I like the way God says it here. He says, you know what? If you would just put me first, if you would just bring the full tithe into the storehouse, test me and see. I will open the very floodgates of heaven to provide your needs if you will just put me first. Is that a challenge for you this morning? Is God saying to you, hey, I need to worship God with my wallet. I need to worship God with my giving. I need to test God and see what it means to begin to put him first financially in my life. Maybe that's giving 2%. Maybe that's giving 4%. I don't know what it is for you that is generous, sacrificial, and you can give cheerfully. Whatever it is, begin there, test God and try God. I guarantee you he'll provide for your needs. Well, the right way to worship God, as I'll mention this, is simply from Romans chapter 12. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in the, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Worship that is pleasing to God is not just about a Sunday. It's giving all of your heart, all of your life, to put Jesus first. Because he's worth it. That's what true worship is. So prayer, we pray all the time over everything. It's like breathing for a Christian. We have to constantly do it. Worship, there's a lot of wrong ways to worship God. We can fail to worship God with our wallet. We can fail to worship God by giving him our best. But the right way to worship God is to give everything every day in submission to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be people who worship you because we desperately love you. Uh, may we joyfully give all of our life in gratitude and in thankfulness to you. Father, we realize and confess that sometimes we just uh, choose to give the leftovers of our life and that's not what you want. It's not what you deserve. You deserve our best. And help us also to be able to give to you with our wallet joyfully, joyfully, sacrificially, and proportionally. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.